so anyway, turn in your Bible to John 3. I'm going to tell you a little bit. We'll read the passage here in just a moment. I was listening to a, uh, a pastor I met several years ago in Chicago, although he pastors in uh, Nashville. His name's Josh Howerton. Josh is the son of Rick Howerton, who was here a few weeks ago, if you were here to hear him speak. Uh, it, he was talking about how he and some of his family uh, they, they, they would work together in teaching gender roles to their kids. And he had a lot of qualifications and a lot of careful statements as he addressed a large group. But the bottom line of what they would teach, particularly they would teach their boys this, is that the boy goes down so that the girl may go free. That's the general idea. In a world where we send women into combat, and ignore biblical teaching of equality among genders, but different roles and responsibilities, that may not set real well, and I admit it. I'm aware of that. But the idea that the, boys go, that the boy goes down so that the girl may go free resonated with me this week, and maybe it will with you too. We're going to read about the bride and the bridegroom in John chapter 3, verses 28, 9, and 30. Uh, so here, here we go. Again, this is John the Baptist talking. This is John the Baptist, the man who Jesus said was the greatest man ever born among, me, among women. Now, why is the greatest man ever born among women not Jesus? Well, that would be because Jesus was born of God. And so John is separate, or rather Jesus is separate, whereas John is one of us. But he's considered the greatest. And so here we go. He says this to his followers who have just gotten a little bit jealous of the attention Jesus is getting. Uh, he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him. Rejoices, or he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this Pardon me. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has come. Thank you that he has died in our place to carry away our sin and to make us his. Thank you that he has indeed made us. His. And now, Lord, we pray together that we could see Jesus today. We pray that even though I want to give a, a wonderfully coherent and put together message to and for these people, Lord, that I would fade into the background, but that Jesus would be completely visible, completely obvious. And that we would be drawn to Him as His name is lifted up. And that we could truly follow our Lord and Savior. I praise you and we love you. And we pray it in Christ's name. And amen. Here in this passage, we see a couple things. Again, John has been dealing with his disciples, his followers, those who've worked with him for the, the last several years. And now they've become a little bit jealous. Jesus, the Savior, has come onto the scene and the people have stopped listening so much to them. There's still some people there, but th those who've been hearing them 
preach and teach about the coming Messiah, and they, and they heard John say when, they, when he baptized Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of a sudden their attention was shifted from John to Jesus, and now they're out in the wilderness and they're baptizing again, and all of a sudden they don't have much of a crowd to talk to, but Jesus has the crowd to talk to. And jealousy has set in. Humanity has its way with that. Um, but, but John wants to be very clear after he's followed up and said, you know what, that's appropriate. He says, a man, let's see, uh, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. It, it, here's the idea, and I forgot which one of you I used the line on this week, but I've used it on one of you. Uh, it, it was given to me years ago, and it was given to uh, my friend Tony Cecil before then. You, no matter who you're talking to, no matter how much you love them, no matter who you're concerned about, no matter how much you want what is best for the other person, for them, no matter what you think of them or how much you love them, you are not their Savior. You can't want it for them. You can't do it for them. There is nothing you can do to save that person across from me, from me, from you, from anybody. You are not their savior. It was a wonderfully freeing moment when Tony Cecil told me this. Now let me be fair. Uh, I, I, I was considering, I had actually had church members who had come to me at Providence. Now this is not to give you any ideas. Y'all be quiet when I get done telling you this story. Um, I, I had a lady in the church. She was related to me actually. Um, she came to me, and she knew of an open church. It was a big church, and she said, Bobby, we're a little bitty church, and we can't afford to pay you much, but you've been here for several years. If you wanted to put in for that bigger church, it may be a good opportunity. And so what I heard was it was time to leave. But I didn't want to leave because I suffered from this little problem. It was a little bitty church. And I loved the people and I cared for what happened to that church. And I cared for what happened to those people. And I was struggling with it. But I, my, my cousin Autumn had married this other guy and uh, he, he was a preacher and he, he had resigned his church. And I had lunch with him. And that's Tony Cecil. And if you ever go to Lifeway, and you, uh, there, there's an author, he works at Lifeway, his name's Tom Rayner, and you can go to, he'll have like six or eight books at Lifeway, and one of them is going to be called Simple Church. And if you pick up the little, it's a, it's a little white book, and if you pick up the book Simple Church, you're going to read through it, and about halfway through it, you're going to come across this guy, Tony Cecil, and how they did discipleship uh, in Glasgow. It... Tony resigned to that church not long after that book was published. And we can get into why, but that's just going to be distracting today. He came and we had lunch and he said, I'm going to tell you what I was told. I wanted what was best for that church, but I knew I had to do something different. And I was set free when my pastor told me what I just told you. You are not their savior. You are not their savior, but they do have a savior. There is a savior in the world that they need. And so I must tell you, congregation, I am not your savior, but there is a savior available to you. John the Baptist, the absolute greatest man ever born among women, had to tell his followers, I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. He had to remind them of that. He had to tell them. So uh, the question here now is, why does this matter? Why am I bothering to tell you that? 
you kind of knew I wasn't Jesus, and I kind of knew you weren't Jesus, so why am I bothering to talk about this? I mean, really, we know that the role of Savior belongs to Jesus and Him only. Well, it matters because even though we know who the real Savior is, we may live and act as though we think we ourselves are someone's Savior. Are you that person? Do you ever live and act as though you think you're someone's Savior? You may say Jesus is the Savior, but then do you look at the situation and say, I don't know that they'll make it without me. I don't know that they'll succeed without me. I don't know that they'll be okay without me. Who in your life do you think that about? Or, let's turn the coin, are you ready? This is a little more scary. When we turn the coin over and we look at the other side, is there a person in your life that you would say, I don't know that I'd make it without them? Who's your Savior? Who do you belong to? I know you love your spouse. I love mine very much. But if I put her in that spot, I've done nothing but hurt her and me. It has to be Jesus. And for me to put anybody else in that spot would be a lie against God and hurtful uh, to, to the one that I put in that spot. And the same is true in your life as well as the next person's. So it matters when we look at this verse. John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, uh, says this. Um, man, I keep wanting to go back to 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And we talked about that last week. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. I have been sent ahead of him. Hey, wait a minute. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Christ, but... Now, John had been sent ahead of him. Make straight the way of the Lord. The Bible had foretold of him. But then again, when we, that was the introduction to Jesus coming into the world. John the Baptist came and he went before him and he told the world of the coming of the Messiah. But then we come to the end of the story of Jesus' life. And at the end of the book of Matthew, it concludes with a series of verses that we call the Great Commission. What is that job? What does that do? It says, go and make disciples. Who does it? You, you understand from English class, when you read a sentence that says go, there's a word implied, isn't there? Go is an action, right? That's a verb. You, you do this. And you can't have a sentence without a noun and a verb. But literally, you can write go, explanation point, and it's a whole sentence. How does that work? Because there's a noun implied, and the word is you. So when Jesus stands and says, go and make disciples of all nations, the word is you, you. Now wait, doesn't that apply to just the preachers? No. What if Christianity relied only on the preachers? How many people could the church reach if we had one person who was willing to tell somebody else about Jesus? All right, now what if every one of us raised our hands instead of just me? Would it make a difference? All right. So now we see John has made the comment and we find ourselves relating to him. I am not the Savior, but I've been sent. 
And the beauty of this situation, John had to go ahead of Christ. And the road was so rocky and the road was so rough, it was his job to make the path straight. It was so hard and so difficult, it literally cost him his head. They cut his head off. You don't live in that culture. And in fact, not only that, you don't have to go ahead of Christ. You get the privilege of Christ going ahead of you. Because the Holy Spirit goes and He covers and he, and he makes a way. He has already worked on the hearts and minds and souls of those that you will come in contact with. And by the time you speak to them, God has already engaged them. So He's gone ahead of you. And so when we get that command to go, we can relate to John, but we understand we don't have to go where He's not been. We go where He's already at work. And that's the beauty of it when we get to share our faith. All right. Here we go. You are not their Savior. Second thought, as a Christian, you belong to someone else. If you belong to someone else, it means you do not belong to yourself. Okay? How many people can own you? Well, just one. Either you or somebody else. And in this case, as a Christian, you belong to someone else. We see it in verse 29 here. Look at this. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Now just for the sake of understanding the verse, because I admit if, if you're not familiar with this whole idea, you read this and it's like there's three people involved, but we're only talking about two and it's really confusing. So let's just talk about who these characters are because he's obviously given an example. So he uh, who has the bride. First off, who is the bride? And guys, we can wiggle about this more than the ladies. Who's the bride? Oh, that would be us. That would be the church. That would be all of us who belong to Christ. And so when we look at this picture, we have to understand the bride is the people who belong to Jesus. So we are the bride, the bride. And then there's the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Well, that would be Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom, the one who the bride is given to. The one uh, who has the bride is the bridegroom. But then there's this friend. It's like there's this third party. Well, John the Baptist identifies himself as the friend, the one who points the church to Jesus. Understand this. Here's this picture. Let's work on this just a moment. Um, in ancient times, uh, it, it, what would happen would be the, the, the groom would be busy getting the wedding together, getting the ceremony and the celebration together. He would have work to do at home. He would have work to do for the feast. He would have work to do for the meal. He would have preparation to take care of ahead of time. And so he would designate a friend. And that friend was to go and to care for the bride-to-be. Right, That friend was to make sure she had what she needed to protect her, to serve her, to look out for her during that time. It was his job to take care of the bride. That was the friend's job. It is, catch this, that's the forerunner to what we know in our wedding ceremonies today as the best man. Now really a lot of times the best man in our weddings... Uh, at least when I do it, most time the only job he has is don't lose the rings. Right? In fact, the sooner he can give them to me, the better.
We had one one time where the, uh, where the bride didn't really trust the groom's buddy. And so she literally went out and got two $12 rings to give to the, to the, to, to the best man and actually gave me the, the, the wedding rings. There's supposed to be a little more trust involved there, but hey. Um, imagery, sorry. Okay, so you belong to another. In the Bible, the marriage relationship is often used to describe the relationship between the church and Christ. Uh, the church refers to all of the saved of all time. Here in John chapter 3, before the cross has occurred, John the Baptist gives us an illustration of this impending wedding. Now that's a beautiful uh, observation uh, or, uh, on the part of John. He has brought this up. It's an impending wedding. It hadn't happened yet. It's going to happen. And the fact that it's in John 3 is wonderful. It's awesome because when you get to Paul and Paul starts talking about uh, the, the husband and the wife, he doesn't talk about the bride and the bridegroom. He's not talking about an impending wedding. He's talking about one that's already occurred because in Paul's world, the cross has happened. The resurrection's done. In John's world, it's yet to come. And so the union, what happens that makes it all possible is actually on the timeline. And those who are speaking recognize it. Paul recognizes it's already happened. John says it's yet to come. That's the beauty of it all because they know exactly where they stand. They know exactly what's going on. And God has led them to this point. All right. Settings immediately before a wedding. The bride is us. The bride is the people of the church, the saved. Jesus is the groom uh, uh, or what in times gone by was called the bridegroom. You see that in the text itself. Um, so to understand this verse, we have to see that we, as being a follower, um, are the bride and, uh, and Jesus is the groom. We've said that. All right, here we go. Um, we belong, we must belong, in fact, to Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches us. We must belong to Him. I'm going to turn over here to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. In truth, we could read a long section here, but this gives us a picture uh, of what it is to belong to someone else and specifically to belong to Christ because it's Jesus who's speaking. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So it, it just like, it, now, that, that may sound harsh, but just like in a marriage relationship, we agree it's in the vows forsaking all others. Oh, that's in our vows. Forsaking all others. We reject all others. There are no suitors that, uh, that, that the man or woman can welcome. From this moment on, we, we have cast them out. They're no longer considered. Only the spouse is considered. All those others are driven away. And so when we look and we see this description from Christ, verse 24 again, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 
We are given fully to the bridegroom. We are given fully to Christ, not to be distracted or pulled away with something else. Now, before I move on any further, let's think about this for just a second. What do you give your life to? Oh, you, you need to catch that. What is number one in your life? What is the number one priority in your life? And See, we can say that it's Jesus, especially when we sit in these pews. But I, I'll give you an example, uh, although with different people it may turn out different ways. Um, the example I've often heard is, uh, now this is back when people actually kept checkbooks and registries. Give me a person's check registry and I'll tell you where their heart is. What do you spend your money on? What's the most important thing in your life? I would venture to say in a land, in the good old USA, uh, where compared to the rest of the world, we live in abundance. My question for you is, where do you spend the majority of your time? When you... Uh, have the opportunity, whether it be with family or work or at church or at a club or just at home, where is your heart and mind? And where does Christ fit into that? And would you dare say that Christ has a place always with you in what you're doing? That can be hard. Because whether we talk about our money or whether we talk about our time, literally time, the most valuable commodity that there is, it's the thing that we don't want to sacrifice. It's the thing we don't want to let go of. But it's the most valuable thing we have. And so when we give our time to things of the Lord, we understand we are giving our very best. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain brought an offering, the Bible says. Not a stinky offering. Not a rotten offering, but Abel brought his very best. My question for you is, do you bring your very best? I'm going to give you an example, although we've already taken up the offering, and so I might kind of step on your toes, and you'd be sitting there like, because there's no way you can do anything about it right now. At least not without drawing a lot of attention to yourself. Okay, here is our offering. When you gave your offering... Um, and the Sunday school class heard, heard this earlier. When you gave your offering, did you uh, say, huh, offering, they're going to pass the plate, and reach in your pocket and just see what you could find, and you pulled it out, and you got a $10 bill and a quarter, and you put them together, and when the offering plate came by, you put it in and said, that's my offering. Or were you at home yesterday, or when the paycheck came in, and said, this is how much I got paid. I'm going to give this much on Sunday morning, because that's the distinction. It's not whether or not you gave $10 or $100, and it's not whether you gave $10 or $5. It's where, it's where was your heart? Was it an intentional, I love the Lord God, so I will give to Him? Or was it, nah, I'll give something. Don't worry about it. God does not deserve your, nah, I'll give something. God deserves your very best. Everything you've got to give, that's what you give. He has given you how much? All right, anybody who's ever have a child has 
anybody who has ever had a child that they loved, I didn't even say had a child, anybody who has ever had a child that they loved, how much was given for you? Everything. Right? <laughs> I love you. You. But in case y'all don't know, I heard the scariest words on earth this week. I knew when the phone rang at 3.15 it was not good. I knew when I saw my phone it said James Sharp at 3.15 it was not good. This is a bad time for him to be calling me. However, he could just be telling me he wants to go to McDonald's. Here we go. And I answered it, and sure enough, the words came out of his mouth. No one is hurt. But. Dang it. He'd been rear-ended. Uh, so it, it, it don't sit there and say, gosh, James messed something up. No, he didn't. He just, you know, things happen. Um, but the deal is that idea of your child being hurt. Is that not the most terrifying thought. Now, how much was given for you? Jesus is the Son of who? God. That's what was given for you. So when you set aside time and you start thinking about giving your very best, whether it be time or money or effort or obedience, or whatever. At work, at home, with your spouse, with your friends, you give your very best. And why do you give your very best? Because the very best was given for you. That's why you give the very best. So we don't have to ask and say, I don't know, maybe I can find a couple quarters down in here. We decide ahead of time, I love him, and so I'm going to give. I'm going to give him my money, I'm going to give him my time, I'm going to give him my family, I'm going to give it my work. I'm going to do my very best because he's worth it. Not because your boss is worth it. I know, I, I read online this week that the majority of people never quit a job, never quit work, they quit their boss. I love my work, you. Most of you I know love your work you may not care a whole lot for some of the people you work with. Sorry. We give our very best because the very best was given for us. That's what we do. And we belong to Jesus. We have seen how much He requires of us in Luke chapter 9. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I've quoted this a lot. It's a carryover between verses 19 and 20. It says this, You are not your own. You have been bought at a price, and therefore honor God with your body. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. What was the price? The price was the very best. The price was the life of Jesus. That was the price that was given. And so when we talk about sin, like we did on Easter Sunday morning, when we talk about sin, we have to look at that sin and understand the price was the very best, the greatest. And so that sin is to be hated and rejected even if it's something that I enjoy. 
Do you have sin that you find yourself enjoying from time to time? You want to know something? I'm real glad you give me this big heavy wooden desk to hide behind. I do. I have things that I'm tempted, and when I fall into them, I like them. The problem is I know they go against God, and so I must repent of those things and reject them, turn from them and walk away from them. And I come upon them and I say, but I'll enjoy that. And I have to say, no, God has told me, no, walk that way. Walk this way. But I like that. It doesn't matter. That's what repentance is. It's not, well, I like it, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'll just ask him to forgive me later. It'll be okay. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. This is God. Do you have no fear of the one holy, true God who can cast body and soul into hell? Because that's what you're supposed to. So am I. All right. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Third thought. There is a unique call of being a Christian. It's selflessness. We may very well return to this verse next week. I don't know. But he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. It's self-abasing. It says, I am not the concern here. I am not the worry here, but He is. He is above all things. And so we trust Him. We love Him. And if it means I don't get my way, it's okay. Because as long as He gets His way, everything's going to work out. And so I give that over to Him. Now understand, others will claim this idea. This idea that this, there's a unique calling to Christianity and it is selflessness. Others will claim the idea, no, no, selfless is what I am. No, no, see, Jesus is very clear in that whereas others may offer a selfless deed from time to time, their heart is still selfish. At heart, they are selfish. We, as sinners, at heart are selfish. But the one thing that we have going for us is that when the Lord looks upon us and fills us with His Holy Spirit is that we are truly changed to become more like Christ. Yes, there is the tug of war that goes on between us, between sin, selfishness, but there is also the tug of the Holy Spirit, true selflessness. He must become greater. I must become less. There is that pull. If that pull does not exist in you, I would encourage you to read John chapter 3 multiple times and spend a good bit of time in prayer. I heard a soldier uh, describe what he saw after multiple tours of duty in the Middle East years ago, and maybe you've heard stories like this as well. In fact, I know I've heard at least one of you speak about it. Years ago, uh, when the first George Bush was president, I forgot what they called it, but we were at war in Iraq, and the, the soldier had served there, and he, he saw that... Uh, uh, in that culture, the men would walk and the women would have to walk like 10 paces behind them or something. The men could talk, but the women had to stay back there. That was a sign of the male dominance, of the, uh, of the female submission to the husband, and that they, had to, that they had to walk behind. And that was just the way it was. But he made an observation that, uh, you know, that came to an end. He came home, and years later, he had another 
deployment in the same region. And when he got back to that region, years and years later, he noticed that the women were walking 10 to 20 steps ahead of the men. Why? And so finally he got the opportunity to ask, why are the women, years ago the women walked behind the men, now the women walk in front of the men, what has changed? And the answer was, the women walk in front of the men so that if there's a landmine, the woman will walk up on it first. Ah. <sighs> The idea is that the man's life would be more important than the woman's. Another story I heard, this time in the good old USA. I got to tell you, I like Batman movies. I, at least I liked Christian Bale. When, when they cast the Boston guy to be the Batman, I just don't know about that. That's weird, okay? But I liked Christian Bale. I liked the Batman movies. And uh, several years ago, the dark night rises. The final of the Christian Bale Batman movies was coming out. And it was a, it was a town in Colorado. And, and it was a midnight showing. As soon as you could watch it, you could go watch it at this movie theater in Colorado. And three couples... Uh, went that night. There were, there were other people there, but three couples in particular go to watch Batman, The Dark Knight Rises, and they sit down and the movie begins and something happens. A husband and his wife come in with tear gas canisters and throw them into the movie theater. And they have their gas masks on and they have rifles. And as the people begin to stand, disoriented and can't see and in pain, they begin to shoot them. As soon as the bullets began to fly, the three men of these couples grab uh, the girls that are with them and they throw them on the ground and they laid on top of them. Why did they do that? Two girls in that movie theater were wounded. Two, two of those three. One was not wounded. Two of, the, two of them were. All three of those men died that night. All three of the women are alive today. These are selfless acts, aren't they? This is a selfless act. I'm reminded of the story that I told you a moment ago. The boy. What did he do? The boy goes down so the girl may go free. That's the culture I'm from. That's the culture you're from, but that's not really the question of which culture is better. It has a whole lot more to do with which culture does God identify with? or which culture identifies with God. Do you remember our passage from John? John chapter 3. There was a bride in the story. There was a girl. 
there was a groom in the story. Wasn't there? And the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Here, we are reminded that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. But what is that price? The price for us to go free was the life of our Savior. The boy went down so the girl could go free. It's not just Christian influence that leads to those things. It's the gospel itself. It's the work of Christ. It's the work that He did, the example He set, the promise He gives, and the fulfillment that is yet to come. The bridegroom died on the cross so that his bride could go free. Jesus took your sin and mine. He took your place and mine and died in our place so that we could go free. He loves you that much. Do you understand the love that he has for you? Or, or have you brushed it aside and said, well, I'll give it a little bit on Sunday morning, and maybe I'll put $10 in the plate, and as far as volunteering, I guess I could probably sweep up uh, something someday if it ever got in my way. Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you so that you can be free from sin and death and hell. That's what He did for you. That's what he did for you. The question is, will you trust in him? He's called you as a risen Lord, the one who died in your place and rose again. He says, will you come and follow me, love me, trust me, believe in me? And the question is, will you do just that? How much do you hold back, J.R.? In your mind, in your heart, in your life, not somebody else's. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. Do we live that way at home? Do we live that way at work? And do we live that way in private? Because if we're not living that way outside the church walls, it really won't matter what we do inside the church walls. You're going to have to be the salt of the earth. You're going to have to be the light of the world because that's the commission He gave you. That's the call He gave you to follow Him, to be different. We're going to, sing, we're going to stand, we're going to sing our hymn of invitation, and you're welcome to come. Come accept Jesus, come repent of sin, come recommit your life, come and say, yes, Lord, you have called me to do this, and I will do it, regardless of the cost. 